Welcome to the Optimize Your Capacity podcast. Our goal is to help individuals as well as health and fitness professionals enhance their capacity and reach their untapped potential. We aim to have the listener leave with practical advice they can apply today. Expand your capacity. Today on the Optimize Your Capacity podcast, we're talking with Matthew Houck, CSCS. He's the performance analyst of the Portland Timbers. Matt holds a bachelor's degree in exercise science from Western Oregon University and has a master's in exercise and sports science from Oregon State University. He's also a certified strength and conditioning specialist with the NSCA. Prior to joining the Timbers, Matt spent one year working as a sports science research director for the Falcon Pursuit. He also also served as a sports science coordinator and graduate strength coach for Oregon State University's football program. Today, Matt and I talk about his role as a sports scientist with the Portland Timbers of the MLS. What we try to do is take information from the professional realm, from maybe people who have a large budget, and try to make it practical for all of us. For someone who's maybe a fitness professional working with a client, for someone who's maybe running a high school sports club, uh, or even to those in the professional ranks. Matt has some really encouraging remarks regarding the future of technology in sports. And the other big thing that we try to discuss is injuries. You could say injury prevention, but what we try to literate or put more details on is the idea of injury mitigation, where we can't truly prevent. We're trying to do our best to limit and reduce, and how we can use data, science, to help us with that process. You know, Matt's a great guy who really understands the practical side of technology and data in sports. I really hope you enjoy it, and definitely leave us some comments and feedback. So, Matt, thanks for taking the time to sit down and chat today. Pretty excited to hear some of your feedback and insight. Give me a little background on yourself, how you ended up where you're at right now. Yeah, thanks, Nick. I uh, I appreciate the time to get to sit down. I know we're both in the thick of it with your schedule, my schedule, but anytime we get the opportunity to take uh, some time to talk shop, it's great because we share ideas and someone's going to get better at something, right? Yeah. Um, So, myself... um, you know, I've been in, let's call it the field of like exercise, fitness, sports performance, sports science. Um, I got in the field early. Um, I'm entering my 15th year now, which you'd think oh. like I'm an aged old man, but that's not definitely not quite the case. <laughs> um, I had the unique opportunity to get into the field at a very young age where I was still a collegiate athlete, but I had a very unique opportunity to be interning and working to coincide um, training as an athlete myself. Um, but I got into the field of studying exercise and sports science really early on. I made that decision really early on because of some great mentors that I had. Um, and over the last 15 years, I've got to work, you know, in the private sector, I've got to work in corporate fitness. I've got to work in kind of a clinical setting. I've got to work in, you know, the, the collegiate setting, division one, power five football. Um, I've got to work in professional sports, and then in between the collegiate setting and the professional setting I'm in now, I had the opportunity to work in the private sector and, you know, see what was going on in the forefront of sports technology as a whole. Um, obviously, I had a role there for a while where I was trying to lead some initiatives of, you know, sports science research. Um, which direction are we taking it from a team performance standpoint, from like an equipment, footwear, apparel standpoint? Um, so I, I feel pretty confident that to say like over the last 15 years, I've really spread the whole gamut (laughs) of the exercise and sports science field, hopefully for the better. (laughs) So when you were in college, did you have like a plan? Like I was going to do this or did it kind of just organically grow into something or did you have like foresight into it? You know, um, I, I would say. You know, based on all the conversations I've had over all the years of either strength coaches or physical therapists, athletic trainers, sports um, sports coaches themselves, and now sports scientists, if we want to kind of get in that realm, yeah. uh, I don't I don't see my track as very unique in the sense where I had an experience as an athlete that drove me into the field, yeah. and my experience as an athlete was. Um, a pretty typical experience where I had some wonderful coaches and mentors, but at the same time I had some coaches that really challenged me and challenged my athletic path. Um, and I had this, you know, unique moment, uh, you know, when I spoke at the seminar down 
at your facility in Bend yeah. last, uh, I guess it was last fall now, fall yeah. 2018. I spoke about my eureka moment of when I really entered into the field of, I, you know, ran track at, in high school, I made the state meet, I made the state finals and my coach was telling me, Hey buddy, if you think you're going to win state, you think you're going to run all these times, you have to do these exact workouts and all these things. And he made all these, you know, pencil drawn graphs about what it was going to take. Um, I did it. I ran the worst time of my career. <laughs> uh, and there's actually like a, like a state association picture, like, you know, the token photographer as you're walking off yeah. uh, of me seeing my time up at down at Hayward field, the university of Oregon, beautiful track facility. And I'm walking off this uh, track after seeing my, my time. Um, and it was literally one of the worst times of my entire track career. And I go, wait a minute. I just did everything I was told to do. Every workout, yeah. every you know, track session, and it did not work. So my question quickly became like, what do I need to do to get better? What What is the path? Yeah, Th- That is literally the moment that got me into the field. And I think that's actually, I would say it's from all the people I've spoke to, like that's a pretty typical path of people who want to forge this path in the field of, I don't want people who are coming after me, younger, I don't want them to have the same setbacks. I want them to have it better than I did. That's what got me into the field all those years ago. Yeah, well said. Um, All right. So the theme of this podcast is capacity. What can you do to improve your capacity on any level possible? Obviously, with your background skill set, we're going to kind of narrow that down. Metrics, analytics, sports science. So I'm going to start asking you some questions where I hopefully we can leave with some good practical advice on how we can use numbers and science to help improve our performance. But before we get into the details of that, so right now you're with the Timbers, Portland Timbers. What's your like, what do you do there? What's your job? What's your in and out responsibilities of kind of that job? Um, my actual title, um, if I go back to my job description, which yeah. we, we, we get to go back to every year, um, <laughs> I'm the performance analyst. Okay. What that means in practice is that I'm the sports science guy. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I I don't know if I'd call myself more of a sports scientist or a sports science coordinator. I wear many different hats, but basically the ins and outs of my day, I'm responsible for most all of the sports science technology monitoring and assessment of athletes. I report to the sports science director, who in reality is the high performance director because of his arch and aim is planning over multiple. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, medical performance, nutrition, and even the influence he has on the the coaching and scouting side. My job is to take most all of our hardware, GPS, heart rate, Omega wave, wellness questionnaires, force plates, hydration, nutrition, uh, you know, speed gates, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I want to make sure that hardware is collecting information, uh, collecting information well, getting accurate, reliable data. Uh, connecting it into our software databases uh, where we are collecting it in a centralized athlete management software system, which all of our medical and performance and nutrition data live concurrently um, and making sure that we are uh, not just collecting like accurate, reliable data, but what does that mean in regards to the planning and programming we're doing for today for each individual athlete, for the team as a whole, for guys who are on rehab return to play, what is yeah. our weekly plan for this team given match density? What is our monthly goal given the matches that are coming up, given the trajectory that we're on? Uh, basically, I want to make all the information that we have actionable for the very real programming that we have to do on a daily basis and not just on the pitch, but in the weight room, in rehab, in recovery, nutrition. Um, so I kind of coordinate those efforts to support multiple staffs. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm reporting to the sports science director who's kind of um, who's who, who's managing several staffs. But um, the multiple hats I wear is kind of sports scientist. But at the same time, I am still acting as a sports performance coach to support the full time performance staff. So mm-hmm. every once in a while, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking a guy through a weight room session. I'm taking a guy through an on-field, uh, like introduction to movement skills under the direction of the rest of the staff. Yeah. I, I very often are also wearing the hat of, you know, the fitness coordinator where I'm going out and running with the guys. So despite, uh, 
Yeah. Despite my age and state, I'm still doing conditioning <laughs> with professional soccer players, yeah. for better or worse, mind you. Um, but so th- there's a lot of hats I wear right now. But as a performance analyst, the main initiative is the management and implementation of our sports science, technology, and software to monitor and assess player performance, recovery, and uh, programming based off of that. So then do you guys have like weekly round tables or are you guys all like sitting down and chatting or do you mostly go to like your superior or the director and then he's the one talking to the others or how do you guys all collaborate? So this is where I, I toot our horn a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, we our collective medical performance and nutrition staff meet on a daily basis to go oh. over individual plans, team plans, uh, rehab trajectories, um, and th- you know, this is where I, I give the rest of the staff the pat on the back and you yeah. know, the current directors and leaders in those areas. I've been around team sports a long time, uh, whether it's collegiate setting, the professional setting, whether I'm directly in those settings or on the periphery and consulting. And the way that this model has been set up here with the Timbers that was in place before I got there, mind you, I'm yeah. I'm going to give credit where credit's due. Like this is how it should be done in an ideal yeah. setting where we're meeting every day, everybody's on the same page. I'm going to use the buzz term of like, there's a common language between everyone. Everyone knows what's going on every day at every time with every athlete. It's a lot of work, but these round tables are literally, I think technically the table is square now that I think of it, (laughs) but we are doing that every day. Every morning we start that way and every, uh, and we're, we're touching base constantly. So to answer your question, it's we have daily meetings and everyone's yeah. on the same page at all times. I mean, I think everybody strives for that. Even if you run a McDonald's, if you can have daily meetings with your staff and communicate, that's like huge. So kudos to you guys. That's that's awesome. Um, so then, how do you define like what are sports met? Like, how do you define sports metrics or sports science? These are like buzz terms, analytics. They sound cool, but do people even really know what it means? Like, how would you describe that? Any of those terms, I guess. Uh, let's start with sports science. Yeah. Um, you know, when I when I do presentations, like when I did the presentation last year, yeah. I've done other presentations for universities who are trying to explore this area. Um, sports science for me is the discovery, interpretation, and communication of meaningful performance information. So yeah. when I when, when I'm talking about discovery, I'm talking about athlete monitoring and assessment. When I'm talking about interpretation, uh, that's through the lens of someone with content knowledge as a field expert. Yeah. And then when I'm talking about communication of that information, I'm referring to someone with content knowledge who is trying to profile an outcome. So for me, sports science. Um, it's such an ambiguous term because of all the hype and sexiness around it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, people, either people who are trying to sell technology, people t- who are trying to sell themselves, they're throwing this out there. And when you actually get into a real world setting, uh, into an applied setting, whether it's a team or whether it's like a high performance facility, like where you guys are operating out of, mm-hmm. um, when you get on the front lines like that, you realize that th- there needs to be a more concrete definition to that. Yeah. And based on everything that I've known about yourself and Kevin down there at Boss Performance and everything you guys are doing, what we do with the Timbers, for me, this is sports science because it's applied in the proofs in the pudding based on all the criteria that I just laid out. Yeah. Now, when you yeah. talk about when you talk about sports metrics, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to borrow some concepts from some popular names and popular ideas in the fields. Uh, you know, Fergus Connolly's book. Yeah. Um, Game Changer. Uh, I'm going to say textbook because if if I was in a university setting right now, that would be like part of the textbook curriculum. If I was doing an applied sports science curriculum, um, that would be a must read, a mandatory read where you want to talk about sports metrics. Think of, you know, the ideas that he laid out and that he communicated. Now, now maybe they were pioneered by others, but the way that Fergus laid them out in terms of sports metrics of being there's a physical side. There's a technical side, which is like your sports skills. And the physical side may be strength and conditioning, sports yeah. medicine, nutrition. But then there's the tactical side, which in my view, it's the X's and O's. 
You know, it's like, how are you operating your attack transition and defense, basically? Yeah. And then there's like this cognitive or psychological side. Some people say a social side of that buzzword team culture, whatever you want to, you know, sports psychology, however you want to refer to that as mindset, focus. When you talk about sports metrics, those are kind of the four buckets, if you will, that I like to dump things into. Obviously, my world is heavily in the performance side where I do with strength and conditioning, sports performance, medical nutrition. But, you know, for me, trying to define that, you can't define those things um, exclusively from another. Like yeah. you have to have an understanding of sports metrics of, okay, I'm looking at all these physical things, but if I don't have any understanding of like technical skills in the specific sport or tactical outcomes of X's and O's in the sport, um, then all of a sudden, you know, the importance you put on the physical really gets, it's like dust in the wind. It's like, it's, it, it's, it's fleeting. You can have a perfect periodized physical performance realm, but if you don't understand the sports metrics of the technical, tactical, and like cognitive realm, as many people have said, who are much smarter than me, who have said it before me, you are not going to optimize team performance on the field, on the court, on the track, on the rink, on the diamond, where the scoreboard is what matters. So the physical yeah. side, obviously you and I, like we live in that realm, right? Yeah. Like, with what you do and how great you do those things with what, you know, the, the, the things that I'm involved in, in, in the weight room or the physical conditioning side, obviously that's like our world and our bread and butter, but our limiting factor would be how do we understand sports metrics outside of our silo to yeah. use another bus term, right? Um, so that's how I look at sports metrics is in, into those like basic f- four different buckets. Yeah. I think the point you're making at the end is is context, right? You can have the best numbers in the world, but if you don't know how to utilize them or put them into context, they're doing nothing for you. Um, and I know it's a trap I fall into is I want to get every possible number or data point I can to get a global picture of this athlete in front of me. But half the time, 25% of that data that I got actually covers everything I need. and I'm just going overblown on things. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's not hard to do. Um, all right. So let's start with a little like case discussion more for like, we'll say the, the average Joe. So let's say I'm a, a 20, 30 year old. I'm serious in the training. Um, you know, whatever I'm into CrossFit, let's say I'm maybe into downhill mountain biking, something that requires power. You know, I've made great gains. I was maybe once you know, an amateur and I'm almost breaking the professional ranks, but I just feel like I'm hitting the wall. Like, is there like a metric or like, what do you recommend the average Joe to do? Is it like a BMI and blood pressure? Is there other tools that you'd recommend an average person? Average meaning you're not in the professional realm or you're not like a professional athlete, but like, what are things you recommend people tracking to improve their performance? You know, this reminds me of some work I did some case studies I performed where I used the same model of assessing recovery. So like inputs to performance and then whatever the sport KPI was outside of that to assess the outputs of performance. And I've done this obviously in the job I'm doing now I've done it in collegiate sports, but you know, you're talking about a real world example. I started doing this with like accountants, business owners. Um, And I had a great opportunity to do this with um, a close associate of mine who, um, you know, runs a very successful family company uh, in the accounting world where we kept track of health and wellness. And then we kept track of like physical performance outputs. But after a lot of consulting with him, we found out we can track these health and wellness recovery components, which I'll, I'll dive into in a moment and compare them to like work specific KPIs. So huh. now we're talking, basically we're talking corporate wellness here, yeah. but with some specific outputs. Cause this was the same model I was using with collegiate basketball of trying to assess uh, health and wellness. Basically all those recovery surveys we hear so much about, I was taking those. I was at the time also using the Omega wave on a daily basis with this athlete in conjunction with uh, his strength coach at the time. And running an analysis of how does your health and wellness behaviors, your recovery status, impact 
your sport outcomes, your skill outcomes. And, you know, when I was able to glean from this, speaking to like the real world athlete, um, first of all, it's highly individualized. Um, in general, when I'm keeping track of health and wellness and seeing how it's impacting performance outcomes, uh, obviously we hear so much about sleep, um, sleep quality, sleep quantity, and I, I, I don't want to diminish that. But what I can tell you is from a client-to-client standpoint or from an athlete-to-athlete standpoint, when we're starting to try to figure out what's impacting performance, it's highly individualized. Uh, There are some generalities that we can take from it in terms of like a total wellness score, which is kind of a customized composite. But what we're seeing from multiple domains that I've worked in and multiple analyses that I've done in multiple populations, it's highly individualized. But – uh, like the total wellness score of like sleep quality, sleep quantity, muscle soreness, like either stress and pain or uh, stress and focus or stress and energy, depending on how you want to set your scale up. The composite score of all of those mm-hmm. um, seems to have a, 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 a moderate to strong association with specific performance outcomes. Now, not every performance outcome, but specific performance outcomes. So you're talking about this average Joe here. You know, you want to talk about what limiting factor, what they should look into. Look at what they're doing if they're training two hours a day. Look at what they're doing with the other 20 hours of their day. And it seems like common sense, right? But I have found in an applied setting, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's a CPA, an accountant, whether it's a collegiate basketball player, a professional soccer player, uh, or a special operations um, operative, um, what they're doing with the other hours in the day absolutely positively has an impact over what happens in those two hours where they're focusing on their craft, but it's highly individualized. So, so to go back to your case, yeah. um, what are they doing the other, with the other 20 hours of the day, uh, to help positively impact those two hours of the day? So would you recommend like a, a sleep log of some sort, either through an app, maybe like a RPE scale or like some sort of like stress monitor? How would you track that? I would be cautious about going down the rabbit hole of uh, sleep monitors, unless it's totally passive. Yeah, that's everything that I'm gathering right now. And there's people who are much smarter than I am that can speak to this. Yeah, a lot of the sleep gadgetry, the more mindful you have to be about the sleep gadgetry. Uh, from what I am understanding, uh, the list impactful, the, huh. uh, the takeaways are now, if it's super passive. So for example, my understanding right now is if you're just wearing an Apple watch and someone knows generally like, okay, uh, there's been inactivity for an hour or two. Oh, you must be at sleep or now you're totally at sleep like that. That would be an example of like a, like a passive indicator versus a specific sleep app where you are logging in, you are pushing stuff, you're saying, okay, I'm going to fall asleep at this time, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. From my understanding is there's there's been debatable returns about the effectiveness of monitoring it because the act of monitoring, which I can tell you from my experience with Omega Wave, wellness questionnaires, G, like all this other gadgetry, the act of monitoring itself can become the stressor. Yeah. So if yeah. you're going if you're going with the sleep route, I would say be cognizant out of it. If you want to monitor it, try and do it passively, uh, but check in with it. Um, but sleep quality and quantity is absolutely, it's the lowest hanging fruit for like every population. And there's good research being done on athletic populations. Uh, Stanford was doing, so, uh, starting to pioneer some of that more recently mm-hmm. um, in terms of like, hey, athletes who get better sleep physically perform better. They technically and tactically perform better and psychologically they're better. Um, obviously I've, you know, presented on some of that work and piggybacked on it. Yeah. Uh, and then I saw the same thing in my corporate population of oh, when we were keeping track of sleep and we were more mindful of sleep. Um, it, it, you know, if I had to give a, a summary of the case study of this particular CPA, um, they were working less hours. Um, but of working less hours, they were able to execute more billable hours and total billable hours because they were sleeping better and able to train and have some type of cognition about their nutritional intake as well. 
So for the average Joe, this is a long-winded answer to get back to your first point. Uh, get to health and wellness. At least be cognitive yeah. of sleep quantity and quantity, uh, quality and quantity. Um, and if as a practitioner, whether you're a physical therapist, a massage therapist, uh, or you're a personal trainer, performance coach, and you're checking in with these people two or three times a week or once a week or once every other week, depending on you know treatment plans and phases of, of treatment, uh, you know, go ahead and give them like a quantitative scale of like, hey, over the last several days, how have you felt with this? Or over the last two or three days or last night, give me a one to five on these things. Check in with them about this. And you don't need an athlete management software system to you know, run a simple Excel spreadsheet and just see a basic trend on how this person is operating the other 22 hours of the day. Do you think it's worth the purchase for somebody to get a Omega Wave or a Whoop Band or a fill-in-the-blank gadget? It depends on your training philosophy. Now, uh, like full disclosure, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not paid by any of these companies. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that that's like whenever you go to a clinic or a seminar, yeah. that's usually like one of the first two or three slides. Yes, that the you, first you, know, slide. you see that? <laughs> and I always have yeah. a good chuckle because it's like, well, of course you're not, because you know you wouldn't be here presenting because yeah. you'd probably be making a whole lot more money if yeah. they were <laughs> if they were uh, if they were actually paying you. So, but full disclosure, this is this is a little bit late to the presentation. I'm not compensated by any of these entities. Yeah. Uh, but based on my philosophy and the way that I'm doing things and the way that I have done things for a number of years, um, you know, for me it would be uh, the Omega Wave. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I want to say about the Omega Wave is that. There's a lot of misunderstanding about it. A lot of people interpret it as a black box, and I respect that opinion because there's been a lot of misinformation out there that the Omega Wave is some kind of red light, green light system for can you train today or not? Are you going to do well today or not? And that's absolutely not what it's for. To interrupt you, can you just briefly describe what an Omega Wave is? So uh, the Omega Wave is a a, a non-invasement assessment tool to understand basically the – readiness of a human organism to perform a high level task in certain areas, whether it's like okay. speed or power, endurance, uh, strength. Um, there's been, uh, you know, a, a lot of like theoretical research that went into, you know, heart rate variability. Um, Omega wave went even further and tried to pioneer a lot of research on like DC potential, like mm-hmm. how basically how well is brain communicating to the rest of your body? Okay. And there's, like I said, there's people who are a lot smarter than I am who can just set out more tactically than I am. But this is what it boils down to. What is your body able to do right now? And even if your body is not able to perform at a high level easily, what will the cost of doing business be in theory? This is what I'll say when I say the, the Omega Wave is not a red light or green light system. Even if someone, if I have an athlete, whether it's right now with the Timbers or whether it's in years past with you know, special operations or collegiate athletes or people who are trying to make them to the NBA, whatever it is. Even if I saw a suboptimal readiness assessment from the Omega Wave, that would not mean that we weren't going to train. That would not mean that we weren't going to train hard. It gave us an understanding that, okay, based on all of our training goals, if we were going to put the pedal to the metal in an area, what would that cost be? And what we need to supplement with certain types of recovery based on what our training goals were for that day, that week, and this, you know, you know mesocycle, macrocycle, however you want to look at it. From my experience, um, I used the Omega Wave as an athlete. Like when I was first starting out trying to become a college football player, for those of you who know uh, who Mark McLaughlin is, uh, he's, uh, he's like director of coaching education for Omega Wave. He uh, had a gym here and in the Northwest region called performance training center years ago. Um, you know, you, your cohort down there, Kevin boss trained with him for a while. Mm-hmm. Kevin and I obviously were teammates at Western Oregon for a short period. Uh, I was Mark McLaughlin's very first athlete <laughs> and I was the very first person. So there's your tidbit. You want an interesting story <laughs> about me? Um, I was Mark McLaughlin's first athlete yeah, yeah. and the story, the joke that Mark will go around when he's talking to coaches at every level in every sport, all across North America and into Europe. Um, you know, he tells a story of, I had an athlete so bad, uh, he broke the system. That was me. <laughs> I was I tested so poorly for so long, and I was of the traditional mindset of, no, it doesn't matter what your readiness or recovery state, like, all that was for. It was about hard work, 
go out blindly train, do whatever you need to do. Yeah. What got me to buy into the Omega wave is like when I started listening to some of the recommendations that Mark was putting out there, that um, some of the other people from the company were then putting out there, Val Mazetkin, um, some of the other guys that were with Omega wave at the time. And I started to see progress and results. That was like drinking the Kool-Aid big time. Yeah. I saw it myself. And then when I was implementing it with athletes around me and like I was saying, it wasn't a red light, green light system, but we were doing fine tuning and adjustments along the way. When I saw them respond in similar ways, then when I saw masses respond in similar ways, when Mark would go out and train a bunch of people, I call these wholesale changes in the athlete that were enabled because of the, uh, the information that we were getting on the system and the organism that was adapting to all the strength, speed, power, movement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like whatever your training philosophy was, if you were stressing the organism in the right way, whether you are looking through, you know, specifically like if you are someone who looks on movement, quality, and quantity, or whether you are a power lifter, like there's a lot of those out there, obviously includes the sports. Whatever your philosophy was, when you were coming back and trying to understand how the athlete was adapting right now and how they were going to be able to adapt and what the cost of that adaptation may be in terms of trying to keep them on an upward trend of improving, that's where I drank the Kool-Aid there. And that's why you know the Omega Wave is one example, but just the concept of trying to keep track of recovery and response to the work that you're actually doing. Um, and what you need to do for the individual so they can continue to respond well. That's yeah. why for me, if I'm going to choose an app to get back to your question, it would be the Omega wave or something immediately like the Omega wave. So I have yeah. an understanding of when I push the pedal to the metal on this person to try and meet their goals on the field, off the field, whatever it might be, I know how they respond to it. That's why it's the Omega wave for, yeah. for, for yeah. myself. That's great. So let's pivot a little bit. So, okay, we took like the recreational athlete. Let's put ourselves in like the coach's trainer shoes. You know, the big thing today is video analysis. You know, you'll go to places, they'll have 3D motion cameras, spend thousands and thousands of dollars. You'll get all these cool videos of lines going through the athletes as they jump off the force plate or the box or whatnot. That's not going to be practical for most of us. You know, the big thing about video analysis, I think, is you know, less about the data that it gives you and more about giving like feedback to the client so they can see what you see. If you were going to recommend some sort of motion analysis platform, what, what do you guys use with the timbers? What's maybe something that if I had an unlimited budget, which like a, Hey, I'm broke and I have no money thing you would recommend. Uh, yeah. Give me your insights on that. So I'm going to, I'm going to eventually throw a complete curveball at you. That's yeah, like, do it. it's like a woge bomb that's coming in hot. on Twitter. <laughs> um, But I'm going to wait for that. Okay. Uh, so like with the timbers right now, it's yeah. well documented that, you know, we use the FMS, the FMS systems, yeah. the SFMA, the yeah. YBT. Yeah. You're also using the Sparta science force plates. The way yep. that those systems for us integrate with each other for like motion analysis um, is uh, works very well with the way that our staff program resistance training, performance training, uh, rehab, and I'm going to use the term corrective exercises, but I don't really like that term. But that concept. Do you do you do the FMS on like the Sparta system? We it, well not concurrently. Yeah, yeah, okay. In terms of like, uh, they're not standing on the force plate doing that. To answer your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, but unlike many staffs. We come back to the FMS multiple times a year. It's not something that we do as a baseline in preseason yeah. and then four months into the year when something happens, we come yeah. back to it. We are doing it like um, we do a baseline preseason start, a baseline the end of preseason, and then once every six weeks or so throughout the year is our goal. Mm-hmm. Um, with Sparta, yeah, we are hopefully doing that once every two to three weeks. We've actually integrated part of the Sparta assessment um into some of our performance training uh so that we get uh we just get more data capture points do you use the sparta almost kind of like the omega wave is like a readiness assessment at all do you have them jump and oh gosh they're 50 percent of what they used to be or not really uh, i i guess it's, it's somewhat similar but uh, yeah. th- there are people who are using force plates very effectively in like the team yeah. monitoring yeah um, we essentially are doing something similar 
But we want to know, based on the information that Sparta collects and how they present their algorithms and the massive database that they now have with all of the athletes, they're at over like a million scans right now in their yeah. system. Yeah. Um, we want to know what their movement signature is because that helps inform us and our staff on what are appropriate movements to prescribe given this individual's movement signature, given this in, individual's uh, functional movement screen, given this individual's YBT assessment, given yeah. this individual's like um, acute, uh, like relative workload. Uh, we take those movement assessments and they all fit together. And this is where I'll give the, the, like the rest of the staff a huge pat on the back. Like they program to the needs of each and every individual athlete. And I think one thing that has helped this staff and this squad maintain the, the positive injury record that we've had over all the years in a, in a league where it's very hard to keep athletes ha like healthy for the majority of the time because of crazy travel, mass density, mm -hmm. and like the extreme demands of the game. Like, so like you know, pat on the back to the guys who've been here now for like five or six years. Um, you know, I'm in my second year, but there are people who've been here for like several years already. Yeah. And there's a reason that they have created this infrastructure where we've been so successful. They understand how systems work together. They understand how to implement things on an individual basis and do you That's guys, how we use these movement analysis is uh, in concert and parallel and knowing how they relate to each other. Do you guys come up with like a composite metric then after all you're doing all those tests to give some perceived value to their quality of movement or whatever you're assessing? Like do you we, composite like the FMS and the Sparta and things or are they separate entities? There, there are ways. Um, I won't dive too deep into this, yeah. but there are ways that we look at the types of scores from the FMS. Yeah. And the types of different scores that make up your overall Sparta score. Yeah. Um, we need to know like where weak links are in terms of like injury risk assessment that is perceived from the Sparta and mm -hmm. information we know from the FMS and other movement assessments we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah. we do look at them in like customized composites and then alongside each other. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So Sparta is amazing. I'm familiar with it. I've used it before. But what's like, let's say whatever, I run, run a smaller gym or something like that, and I want to use some video analysis. Is there like an app on the phone you recommend or some sort of software you recommend? Well, I mean, shoot, man. Like what's awesome about if you never downloaded an app and you have, <laughs> let's say, an iPhone. Yeah. Uh, like the, like the slow-mo feature on your iPhone. Yeah. Uh, if you just have some good visual reference points in the background and are able to pause at certain points and at least point to a hip structure or whatever it might be, that is totally free and totally awesome. Yeah. And obviously there are free versions or, or like low, low, low cost versions of what, what is it? Dartfish. It's yeah. been years since I used Dartfish, but Coach's can, eye. there's a couple of them. Yeah. Super low investment. Um, yeah. And whatever your specialty is, like, it, like if you're training, like, movement skills and you, you're having people accelerate and sprint or whatever it is and you stand laterally from them or you stand uh, you know sagely from them and you can see you know at, at different planes at different steps and different phases of acceleration or change of direction you can see like hey like look how uh you know this angle changes we're looking for more of this and so yeah. that's now a, a teaching tool for you to come back to there are different drills that you can program into like if you're seeing an acceleration and you took a still frame from Dartfish when you're standing, excuse me, laterally to them mm -hmm. in acceleration and you see there's an issue, you take that still frame, you put them up against the wall in a wall drill of like an acceleration hold. And now you say, this is where you were. Do you see how this feel, how this feels? And then you physically put them into the right position. This is what we need you to feel like now you are experiencing like these angles and these degrees. Like that is super low cost and free yeah. and you're giving them exposure to different learning uh, experiences, yeah. visual, you know, audio, you know, kinesthetic all in yeah. one. Like you're reinforcing every way that they could possibly learn and you are hammering home like neuromuscular patterns that are going to be beneficial to them. So, I mean, even to take it back, free, right? Yeah. To take it back to an even simpler level is a mirror. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, 
You know what? What's interesting to me is like mirrors have gotten a bad rep in gyms for different yeah. for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. But then we come back to like the external like external feedback of yeah. if you if you want to help them know and understand, maybe there are purpose and use for mirrors. Yeah. And you know, you know, sure, maybe you know I'm gonna roll my sleeves up and do a couple yeah. extra bicep curls in front of the mirror. <laughs> no one cares about that. No yeah. one's looking at me. Yeah. What's important is you know the athlete is getting some good external feedback. Yeah, I'm blanking on the name of the tool, but there's a basically it's just like a red laser pointer, and you can attach it to joints, and then it like if your joint goes whatever knee into valgus, the laser will like point into adduction or away from the point of mm-hmm. reference. Uh, yeah, like that external feedback with some sort of visual cue is is huge, and it doesn't have to be a Sparta system. Not that there's anything wrong with Sparta. We'd all love to have one. <laughs> uh, exactly. And, and, yeah. and, uh, you know, maybe this is an appropriate time for me to drop yeah. this woge bomb about, yeah. you know, new technologies, yeah. um, in regards to like movement analysis. And I think of some of the like traditional, you have motion capture, accelerometry, yeah. force yeah. plates. Yeah. Uh, you can even say GPS. Now we're talking about indoors and outdoors. Um, some of the technology that I've gotten privy to, um, that is almost to the market now are in my opinion going to be total disruptors to the sports technology market because of the way that they will be able to capture human movement and measure and monitor human movement um, regardless of the location indoors outdoors i don't want to spill too much i am like i'm on nda with with, with a specific <laughs> I was gonna with say, a specific give me more company. give me more but uh, what i promise you is this will get pressed out. And I, I think it's really yeah. lame of me for actually to do this, but I think yeah. it needs to be a point of discussion is that as techno, the way that we look at performance right now is dependent upon the limitations of our understanding that are dependent upon the limitations of technology and technology has come up to now has done an awesome job of helping us push the monitoring and assessment lens forward for better, or for worse. When technology is going to start to shift in advance, we are going to start to look at things more holistically in like a single snapshot where we're not going to be relying on two, three, four different technology inputs. Technology is advancing in a way where it's going to allow us to combine multiple technology inputs to see multiple aspects of human movement, like visually, like numerically. it shifts and variability in these things. Like I'm super excited for this next generation of sports technology because um, it's, yeah, it's going to, first of all, totally disrupt the market. But second of all, um, it's going to change the way that everybody looks at human movement and human performance together at one time. Like yeah, there's your woge bomb. Like I'm super <laughs> excited about it. Boom. Yeah. I'm excited to see it. But uh, I think what you're saying in other ways is like our system is very like silo based where you got whatever measure a B and C and they're all incredibly valuable, but you have to somehow put it all together. And if we could get a more comprehensive, simple tool, it would just totally change the game. Like you're hinting at. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> well, and, and, and Nick, what I'd say to that is like, that's the value of having an athlete management software system. And yeah. I won't, uh, there are many great brands out there. Obviously, like we're going down a certain path and we're really, really, really excited about taking GPS data, heart rate data, Sparta Science, um, FMS, yeah, SFMA, Omega Wave, Wellness, and then like on-field pitch metrics. Like if you have a good, robust system, all those things can live together and you can do a much more comprehensive analysis. It's some of the analysis that we've already done with our newest system is is really changing the way like, you know, we thought we were looking at this and we were right in terms of like a specific metric, say like sprinting exposure or high speed yeah. running exposure. You know, we knew we were onto something. Research validates that and our actual like sport outcomes validate that. But then, you know, as we dive in deeper with a more comprehensive model of looking at all of our data in one place, we go, oh, wait a minute, we're on to something. But now we can get even more finite with our understanding of like different populations in those subsets of, well, we need to be looking at this population one way and this other population another. Like, let's say 
Faster populations, one set of rules apply. Slower populations, another set of rules apply in terms of how we dose these things. Yeah. That like absolutely like technology and data coming together. Um, I know there's a lot of hype around it, and I'm super super like critical and skeptical of a lot of the hype that's put out there by sport technology and sports uh, uh, software companies. But from what I've seen in an applied setting of like putting it all together, I'm super excited for the direction of sport technology in general. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Can't wait. Um, all right, let's do another little pivot. We're going to even go more down my alley here. But uh, let's talk injury, injury management, injury prediction, return to play. So I think a large portion of injuries are due to, you know, just poor load management. Uh, repetitive stress, year-round sport, not variable movement patterns. Basically, you become like a, a ticking time bomb and something's got to give. There's actually been interesting evidence lately, particularly for ACL injuries, that's actually less about a high-speed valgus load, but it's more about exposure. So, you know, kids today are playing soccer year-round, where back in the day they used to play multiple sports. You cause repetitive loads over and over again. Again, the body can only take so much and you get a tear, a sprain, a tendonitis, or whatnot. Where I'm going with this is how can we track this? How can we track injury, I don't even know, injury prediction, I guess? How would you then track on the other end of it of, okay, I'm injured, my life's over, I'm never going to get back, but I want to eventually return to play. What are some metrics or tools I might use for that? I'd be interested to hear your insights on that. So... This is my this is my big push for the like sports science in general, the active athlete yeah. monitoring assessment in the first place. Yeah. If you have no uh, relevant baselines in multiple domains um, on a consistent basis, it your return to play process and planning becomes a lot murkier because you know if all you did was one single baseline like FMS or whatever your movement choice is, you know, I'm not you know necessarily married to the FMS, but mm-hmm. obviously it's what we use and have a yeah. lot of success with. Um, if all you've done is one baseline assessment and then it's been six months and you've done no monitoring assessment, all of a sudden, boom, uh, you have a right hamstring injury. Um, and you understand the mechanism of injury was like, well, he was sprinting and, uh, he fell at pull, and that's that. We diagnosed it. It's like a low grade two, um, and this is the like four to six to eight weeks that we're budgeting for it necessarily. You have no idea where to start back from because you have done no monitoring assessment in six hmm. months. So, in regards to like like measuring like measurements to determine readiness to return to play, we ourselves have like a stratified a very robust return to play checklist of no matter what the type of injury is, this is the concept and model that we will use as a checklist to determine how they are progressing through these steps. And we further stratified it uh, to the credit of, you know, Nick Malonis, our director of sports science, John McGregor, our head athletic trainer, our medical staff, the rest of our athletic trainer, like super credit to them and our performance staff for, like stratifying this based on their training models of like, this is how we know someone is coming back and how we are keeping them on the right path to get back, to minimize setbacks and to maximize return to performance, not return to play, return to performance. So that RTP I'm going to put on its head, return to play, RTP stands for return to performance in my book. Yeah. So, when we're talking about like these measures, I go back to were you doing monitoring and assessment to begin with? Because if you're not, you are basically you're throwing junk up on a wall um, and hoping to see what sticks and you're hoping you're doing conservatively. And then, you know, by being conservative, you're hoping that you are not exposing the athlete to unnecessary undue risk. But at the same time, you're turning a six week timeline into 10 weeks. And yeah. when they get to 10 weeks, you have no idea what the target is. Like, okay, they can play. Uh, can they play half minutes, full minutes, three-quarter minutes? Like, what? What can they play? Yeah. I, uh, I really like I like that point of 
frequency of testing of whatever the tests are because if something goes wrong you have, yeah you have nothing to fall back on uh if you don't test it how do you train it yeah it's 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 a great way to say that yeah sorry keep going um so the numbers to put in perspective like obviously these are the things that we're doing yeah let's say i have like a, a lower quarter athlete or whatever like a whatever a knee person um Obviously, we're doing the FMS. Yeah, we're doing the the YBT, mm-hmm. and when appropriate, if they have progressed against that, like our next stratification is like more ballistic movements. That's where the Sparta comes in, and maybe it's Sparta balance that will coincide with the YBT. Um, but we're going to want to know, like, if they've never had any exposure, like, think I'll take even a step back from this. They've had an injury. Uh, what phase of therapy are they even in like i'm not now i'm thinking of like the soap note world like <laughs> you've done you you have no background assessments or monitoring and you're you're literally coming in with like a blank page on this athlete and you're in a team sports setting you're coming in with this blank page and you're doing these assessments like well okay you know they're still in the acute phase or now they're in the therapeutic phase um you have no understanding of how they are progressing outside of that so that's why I, I hound on the importance of consistent monitoring assessment of like movement quality, competency, neuromuscular, motor control, speed, power, strength. Um, you always have something to build back to, to know where yeah. they were. And then you have a model, a return to play, a return to performance, um, stratified plan of knowing, okay, in rehab, these are all the things that we need to accomplish. And like, at the, let's say like lower quarter, like you know, lower extremity, whatever it is before, you know, we can even test a Sparta jump. You know, we have to have cleared, you know, FMS to these standards yeah. and we need to like, get like low level exposure to like low level, like ballistic movements of like whatever it is, end range isometrics or like low level ballistic plyometrics or whatever it is. Okay. They're doing this. They're tolerating pain. Here's the range of motion. Okay, now the Sparta assessment may be appropriate to see, like, can we clear to the next range? Uh, or should we have been doing more strengthening in the gym that's not ballistic, but still loaded, whether it's eccentrically, concentrically, isometrically, whatever, it, like, you know, outside of my wheelhouse, right? Um, if they've accomplished all those and we're starting to accomplish, like, more low-level ballistic stuff, okay, now we use this next assessment that's at the next step of our return of play because we've checked off all these other boxes um, to determine where were they at? Okay. This is what we're seeing from their Sparta science score or whatever their force plate might be. This is how it informs our next range of rehab return and play as now as we program like motor skill or uh, like movement skills, like accelerate, you know, linear acceleration, lateral acceleration, change of direction, like um, the basics of one-on-one of like, can you move again? Okay, you can move again. There's no pain. Okay, you can yeah. tolerate these things. Now it's more ballistic. But it all comes back to how did you measure those things up to the baseline monitoring assessment that you should have been doing the whole time. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. Again, now again, I'm speaking from the team sport setting, but it's certainly like, let's say from a private practice standpoint, like you have physical therapists out there. I don't. If they don't have a force plate, doesn't matter. They have other movement skills and assessments that they're doing that fit their model and skill. So if they want to put the like, uh, you know, where the rubber meets the road, if they understand the the importance of their own monitoring and assessment of like movement quality or competency um, along their own, like they can that can be sprinkled in every three weeks, four weeks, or six weeks or whatever they're with their athlete. They don't need to have this huge, you know high dollar monitoring and assessment infrastructure to hold the concepts true of, Hey, come back to your baseline assessments. And this is where monitoring and assessment comes into play is, uh, this is where the rubber meets the road on that. Yeah. And basically what you're describing is like a criterion based system. You got to do one before you get to two. And ideally it's based on evidence and you want to follow evidence the best you can, but you've got to create your, your pillars of what do you consider efficient movement and pillars of athleticism and have those pillars progress, you know, for the rehab world, 
you know, we're really big on obviously like neuromuscular control. We're big on like mechanical capacity. And then obviously, like, can they actually perform functional movement? And then you're going to start that super low level post-op and then progress that through. But yeah, again, if you don't have some sort of progression or criterion, you're just in the dark and you're going to end up getting lost somewhere. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So last question here. If we just step back and I don't really kind of point you in any direction, like, do you have like a, I don't even know what the word would be here, like a, a bugaboo or something that kind of bugs you in the health and fitness world or something that gets overblown or maybe like a, a practical pearl that you wish people would focus more on when it comes to kind of analyzing and sports science? Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. There's two directions that I, yeah. that I could think about going. One is a very yeah. concrete, specific example which maybe we can elaborate later, yeah. but you talked about before injury prediction. Yeah. Um, what you'd know, and I, I'm going to use an outside example. Um, this is a league outside of the league that I work in. And I'm obviously there's no like tampering here or anything like that. Cause <laughs> a basketball player would never come play for a soccer team. Yeah. But let's think of the, um, the Kevin Durant example. Yes. Of when he went down the finals and the outrage and uproar, that came when he, he came back and played in the finals. He played a, whatever it was, a quarter, and then went down again with an injury. And I saw the outpouring on social media and like multiple domains, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, of social media warriors going out there talking about injury prediction of like the medical staff should have done this. This is unacceptable. These types of injuries should never happen. And this and that and this and that. And I'm thinking back to a lot of the marketing campaigns of many types of sport technology companies that talk about injury prediction, machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, this thing called augmented intelligence, um, you know, injury, like all of these things that they try and sell you. And then all of these responses from the peanut gallery. Uh, my gripe is that injury prediction um, isn't real. Injury prediction, uh, mental toughness, Santa Claus, and the Easter Bunny, they all live <laughs> in the same cul-de-sac. Yeah. They all live in the same cul-de-sac on, you know, on Strawberry Lane. I mean, you and, could also say injury prevention, right? You can't prevent injuries. <laughs> well, well mean, we, we can, um, like, like, to your point, yeah. we can do as much as we can to try, yes. right? And yeah. based on evidence. But there are things that are so far outside of our capacity, like, no, you cannot empirically predict injuries. And like a lot of sports technology companies are not going to want to hear that from me. But the ones that we utilize the most, that's not a buzzer with them. They yeah. understand, like, the holistic picture, the importance of monitoring and assessment, and then the very nature of randomness and chaos. Like, you cannot predict someone landing on someone's foot. You, you know. cannot predict someone slipping on... Uh, uh, you know, a, a grain of sweat on a court that makes them slip laterally a little bit more. But then people are going to come back and say, oh, well, well they're, if their tissues with this, if they have good range of motion here. And I, I want to say, buddy, friend, amigo, amiga, whatever you might be, you've clearly never worked in a team setting, have you? Yeah. Where these things, with the amount of monitoring assessment we do, um, we have found you cannot predict injury, but you can do a darn good job of trying to do due diligence absolutely positively. And that's where I want to pat the rest of the staff on the yeah. back of the due diligence that they perform. But injury prediction is not real. It's a fairy tale. It, it is a farce. And people who are trying to sell that um, are trying to sell to people who don't have an understanding and knowledge in the background in this field that have deep pocketbooks that will buy their stuff. Uh, the, the folks that we've used, the folks we've been involved with, um, again, I'm not paid by any of these people, yeah. but the reason that we respect them and understand them is that our staff, the rest of our staff, like have a deep understanding knowledge of human physiology, biomechanics, neuromechanics, athletic training, nutrition, um, you know, motor learning, whatever it might be. And they know how to split this stuff out. And they know like the limitations of, I don't know what will happen after this. Yeah. So when I hear injury prediction, uh, I, well, first I, I kind of like laugh and hiss a little bit 
But after being on the front lines of this and working with other people who've had so much experience with this as well, you realize that you can just do your best to do due diligence, to monitor and assess, and to do the best that you can with the information you have on hand based on the human relationship you have with this athlete or whatever the, the coach is, to coach them up nutritionally um, or, or you know, from a strength and conditioning standpoint, from a treatment standpoint. But we can't control what happens 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We can't control an opponent that comes in, cleats in, and, or like lands on a leg and all of a sudden you have a soft tissue injury because somebody literally you know, landed on top of someone's leg and hyperextended or whatever. Like, those things happen. Yeah. Injury prediction is not real. Yeah. Now, injury risk management, that's, that's the process. Yeah. That's real. That's what yeah. we all try and do every day, whether yeah. it's a team setting, a private facility, a hospital. Like, we try and do our best every day to manage, like, hey, let's not be stupid is basically what, <laughs> at the end of the day, like, that's what we come back to. Let's not be stupid. But it doesn't matter, like, the settings that we're all in. Like you've experienced this in many ways. I've experienced it in, 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 in many ways as well. Like the best we can all hope to do is just not be stupid. And um, injury risk management is the best that we can hope for. And we still have a lot of work to do and stuff is still going to happen. But by golly, uh, like based on the results that our staff has had over many years from a lot of hard work that people there put in, I think that we've done a great job at trying to minimize the risk as much as possible and boost the return to play process as much as possible as well. But there's no prediction here. Like we're just trying to do the best we can with the information that we like tirelessly chase after to try and get as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. My, my working theory on the Durant thing is that he did a partial Achilles tear to begin and then, what do you have left to lose at that point if you're probably going to have surgery anyway? But that's another discussion. I don't. Did you see that mechanism of injury? It was like someone shot him. He like looked behind and thought someone kicked him. That's just like Achilles tear 101. I mean, yeah. Like yeah. look at the uh, the the initial. Was that yeah. the semis that happened? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the stereotype, right? And yeah. I've seen that happen in yeah. person with other people, and that was yeah. the diagnosis. We don't know because we don't have the medical notes of the yeah, like, exactly like the 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 warriors were going to put out what they're going to put out what they were required to put out. Yeah. But all these people who were dumping on that staff yes. have yes. no yeah. idea yeah. what the orthopedic assessments were, what the injury mechanism was, what yeah. the history was, yeah. and everyone wanted an opinion on it. So I totally agree with you. Like yeah. there's so many other things that happened that. I feel bad for the dude because he's a great yeah. player. He's fun to watch, but yeah. I also feel bad for the staff and the and the organization that you know they were chastised. I'm like, you guys have no idea because you your hands were not on that guy. You have yeah. no idea. Yeah, yeah. All right, last question that I'm asking everybody. We're trying to improve our capacity. It's the theme of the podcast. What's something you're focusing on to improve your overall capacity? I need to better understand the nature of the competition so that I can improve specific capacity. So that's why I'm so huh. fascinated with with the, whether it's soccer, whether it's football, it's basketball we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, we need as a whole field to better understand the nature of competition. I touched on this in my, um, in my, in my seminar talk uh, with you a few months ago yeah. about the traditional description of the physiological demands of American football is like, you look at it on the spectrum, it's like 90% anaerobic and like 10% aerobic. But then we started to dive into the time motion studies and, and how the game itself has um, uh, has evolved. And we realize there's a lot more motion going on. I've seen the GPS myself. Like, uh, I, I want to turn everything on its head to better understand capacity. I want to know what capacity means from these the competition of the sport outwards. That For me, like that's... That's that, that that's the litmus test. That's that's the measuring stick. I want to help redefine our understanding of the capacities that are demanded from the sport yeah. itself. So that strength and conditioning, sports medicine, nutrition, psychology, and then like the sports coaches themselves can have a better understanding of, oh, all these things that we've been doing like pragmatically. Oh, maybe we need to have a different understanding of how we uh, dose work day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, from year-to-year, so that we're actually preparing athletes to do well so that whatever ends up on the scoreboard 
is because we were doing the right things and not just doing drills or workouts for the sake of doing them because that's how we've always done them. Yeah. That sounds like a a big task, but an important one. Hey, you know, someone's got to do it. Who are you going to (laughs) call? All right, buddy. Well, thank you for the time. Uh, Awesome talk. And uh, we'll catch up sometime soon. Nick, thank you very much. This is awesome. Um, I'm I'm hoping that this is uh, one of many that's coming along for you. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Our goal is to help individuals like you learn practical knowledge you can apply today. If you want more information about how you can improve your capacity, visit our website at capacitypt.com. We have tons of info, including blogs, exercise videos, ebooks, and more. We're soon to offer services such as mentorship for clinicians and trainers, as well as online rehab and training. Stay tuned. If you like this episode, it would mean the world to us to leave a review. Again, our goal is to help and influence as many people as possible, and the best way to do that is through word of mouth. Leave us a review, tell your friends about it, shoot us an email with your feedback. We wish everybody the best. Expand your capacity.